This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 13. The parable of the sower is not a hard story to understand. In fact, it's quite simple. But the truths it reveals are very deep. And just to be sure we get the exact meaning of the parable, Jesus offers his exact interpretation for us in this portion of Matthew. Now last week, Pastor unpacked the four realities of the kingdom. This week, we'll discover the four responses to the king, both of which reveal part of the royal mystery of God's plan for salvation. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to talk about the second part of the two-part message that I started last week entitled, The Discovery of a Royal Mystery. And by royal mystery, we're talking about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, a phrase that Jesus used to refer to something that was not fully understood by Old Testament people, but now fully revealed by him and later on the apostles. So we have the advantage of having the completed word of God and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So here's the telling of that parable so that we can be situated contextually here again. Matthew 13, verses 3 through 9, Jesus says, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So that's the telling of the parable. But then here's how Jesus explains that parable. The interpretation is in verses 18 through 23. Hear them the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the devil, uh, the evil one rather, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So again, I am glad that Jesus explains the parable here because he sets the tone for parable interpretation for us to follow that pattern lest we get into trouble and try to assign meaning that is not there. Last week we learned the four realities of the kingdom and you will remember them. We saw the announcer, the announcement, the antagonist, and the audience. Today I want to talk to you about the four responses to the king. We will focus on that. So church, the first lesson we learn here is that unbelief is not because of ignorance, but rebellion. Keep that in mind. What causes unbelief is not ignorance, because God is revealing 
mysteries here, but it's rebellion. It's the refusal to submit to God. It's the refusal to say, I will let that man rule over me. Man wants to rule himself. And that is the reason why the Pharisees got in trouble. So the different types of soil corresponds to the condition of people's hearts when exposed to the gospel. I want you to know the first response that is very clear here in Jesus' explanation. Verse 19, the first type of response is total rejection. The proverbial seed does not penetrate the soil that has been hardened. In other words, the word of the kingdom bounces back and lays exposed to the proverbial birds. In the immediate context of this parable, the scribes and Pharisees represent that type of soil. But remember, they are representatives of people who reject Christ throughout the ages. Blinded by their religiosity and self-righteousness, these guys refuse to admit that they need grace. Text collectors and prostitutes may be in need of grace because they are the sinners, but not us. That was the attitude then. Therefore, they rejected a non-political, non-military approach of Christ. Remember, they were expecting the Messiah to rise up and conquer Rome and free Israel from the oppressor. That was one of the reasons they rejected Christ. And they therefore represent the hardened soil, the hardened heart. Now, the scenario happens repeatedly, even in our day. Sin hardens the hearts of people so much that the gospel cannot penetrate the outer layer unless God intervenes. Now, people may be facing, may be hardened by the sin of pride, like the scribes and Pharisees, or they may believe that they are beyond salvation, that they have sinned so much that they are outside of God's grace. Both extremes produce unbelief because they allow Satan the opportunity to snatch gospel seeds. Again, it's the heart and heart that Jesus is talking about here. But remember, in the parable of the sower, we are modern-day sowers. Remember, we preach a message that is not ours. We did not originate the message. We are farmers. We are reaching in our bag of seeds, and we are broadcasting the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, because we have been commissioned to do that. Now, the devil, the enemy, works around the clock, stealing the good seed that we sow. That is his mission. But the solution is not to quit sowing. Quitting would actually facilitate the work of Satan. So the solution is not to move away from the gospel. The solution is not to shy away from preaching the gospel, no matter how unpopular the message gets. And it will get more and more unpopular. If you haven't noticed, if take a survey of your Christianity in the last 20 years. Take a survey of our society in the past 20 years. We are no longer a Christian, quote-unquote, nation. In fact, I, I argue that we've never been a Christian nation here. Thank God for our freedom to communicate the gospel openly without the fear of, of guards barging in our door and arresting me. But those days may be over soon. We don't know. The point is we never stop sowing because the day we stop sowing, we're making Satan's job easier. Our responsibility is to sow that seed knowing that some of them will land on the hard soil. We don't stop sowing because of that. Because some seeds will fall on the good soil. Stay tuned. So how do we deal with hardened hearts? When we know that the seeds fall into hardened hearts and bounces right back and expose to the birds, we lament, of course, the fact that people will reject Jesus. We may even shed tears of compassion. But we beg God for their lives and we leave the results up to Him. He will determine when and how those seeds will penetrate the soil because the problem for Satan is that the Holy Spirit is also in the farming business, to borrow the same metaphor here. He plows the ground in people's hearts and prepares them to receive the King. You see, the devil may blind the eyes of unbelievers, but Jesus gives sight to the blind. 
And all of us were blind spiritually before we came to Christ. And we can sing with John Newton, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. See, you embraced Christ only because the Holy Spirit did a major work in your heart. Do not be deceived. The only reason you are a believer today is because the Holy Spirit plowed the hardened soil in your heart. It's not because you are good by nature. That's not true of any believer today or ever. The only reason people come to Christ is because the Holy Spirit tills the ground and and draws them in and does a major work to make sure that the seed penetrates the ground. In other words, you have no merit in your salvation. Salvation is a monergistic affair. If you don't know what that means, it means this. God did 100% of the work. You have no contribution in your salvation, neither do I. It's not a synergistic affair. It's not a combined effort. It's a monergistic, meaning God does all the work. There's no merit. There's no credit in responding to the message. The credit belongs to Christ alone. You and I used to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, actually, before we came to Christ. Paul describes our condition in Romans 1, verse 18, when he says, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That was us before the Holy Spirit did a major work in our hearts. Otherwise, we would have responded like the Pharisees and the scribes in total rejection here. But let me talk to you about the second type of soil, according to this parable. The first one is total rejection, but the second one is temporary devotion. In verses 20 to 21, the second analogy presents a proverbial ground soft enough for the seed to penetrate. The problem is the roots can't reach the nutrients needed for development because of the rocky layer in the soil. Remember, a limestone, a layer of limestone underneath the soil that the farmer can't see. Therefore, he doesn't know. As a result, the seed shoots up only to be scorched by the sun because the root is not deep enough. The sower gets the initial impression of fruitfulness, of immediate result, and may even be tempted to spend more time into this apparently fruitful crop. But the superficiality becomes evident by how the crop responds to the heat. And remember, Jesus is very clear when he says that heat from the sun represents affliction and persecution. Thus, he clarifies that some people will demonstrate initial interest in Christ. Some people actually like the message at first. They seem to embrace the gospel, but their enthusiasm only lasts until the first trial. By the way, look at the picture here again. The sun scorches every seed. Not one seed is exempt from the affliction of the heat from the sun. In other words, affliction, my friend, is a part of your life as a Christian. You will face the heat of affliction and persecution one way or another. Sooner or later, if you haven't already, you will. Have you considered that the natural process of maturity includes that? Furthermore, we live in a fallen world yet to be restored. Only then will suffering be extinguished. But the feature now of the kingdom of heaven in mystery form is that there is affliction. And faith not rooted firmly in the word of God will not endure. Faith that is not firmly rooted will not endure affliction and persecution. See, the folks that Jesus describes in verses 20 to 21 They usually select the elements of the gospel to suit their felt needs. So these folks show up periodically because of a favorite teacher, perhaps, because of a preferred style of worship, maybe, a particular cause, 
maybe a friend, the chance to meet a suitor, but usually they show little interest in serving others because by nature that type of shallowness is self-serving, is self-centered. They leave the faith as soon as they realize that Christianity is not about them. As soon as they realize, okay, I live in a consumer-driven culture, Christianity is not consumer-driven. They get frustrated and disappointed, therefore they leave. There's no reason for them to stay in the faith. I'm afraid, therefore, that they have counterfeit faith, not the real deal, because that's clearly identified by the shallowness of that response. Church false believers have no reason to endure hardship. Why suffer criticism? Why suffer rejection and ridicule if you only embrace Jesus for a season in life, only to get you through a season? Or if you're just looking to, to, to meet a particular felt need, and once that need is met, you don't need him anymore. So why would you face persecution if that's the shallowness of your faith? And that is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Temporary devotion. Notice the word immediately in the parable. Verse 5 Immediately the seed sprang up, and in verse 21 in the explanation, immediately the false believer falls away. That is a very quick turnaround. I've seen my fair share of those types of responses more than I wanted to. People who initially seem to be on fire for the Lord, and then the first trial hits, or the first disappointment happens, and they're gone immediately, just as, as quick as they came. So how do we interact with this type of superficial response, the temporary devotion? We can't see the root. Okay, that's the thing. We can't see people's hearts. We can't see the root. We don't know whether or not the root is deep enough, but we can observe the fruit. Because uh, Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23 says this. Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if we see a person maturing in those areas, if we see people showing this type of fruit, we say, okay, good. That root seems to be in place. But if we don't see that, we have reason to believe that that root is not deep enough. If a professing believer does not display these, we shouldn't be quick to determine that he or she is a false convert. Because again, we cannot see the root. We shower him or her with Christ-like kindness and love and confrontation when needed. Graciously call him or her to repentance. If the root is in the right place, there will be fruit eventually. Because some people bear fruit sooner than others. That's just the reality of the mystery form of the kingdom of heaven. But now let me talk to you about the third type of response to the king according to the explanation or the interpretation of the parable here. Some people will respond in total rejection, others in temporary devotion, and yet others in tragic deception. Verse 22 Similar to the previous type of response, the next group of people's identification with Christ only lasts until God puts them through a faith test, but a different kind of test. See, in the previous category, the test was affliction and persecution. In this one here, the test is affluence and preoccupation. You see the difference? Affliction and persecution, and now affluence and preoccupation. That's because one leads to the other usually. The wealthier you are, the greater your temptation to worry about maintaining your status. Now, hear me very carefully now. There is nothing wrong with having money. God blesses many people who are good stewards with resources. There is nothing wrong with having money. The problem is when money has you. You see, that's the test of affluence and preoccupation. That's the reason Jesus warned constantly against the trap of trusting riches. The love of which is the root of all evil. Love of money keeps people from receiving the gospel. I've seen it happen before. In their mind, they think I have a lot to lose. 
There's too much to lose here if I come to Jesus Christ. I understand the message makes sense, but by coming to Jesus Christ, it means I may lose some of these things. It may be a misunderstanding on their part, but the truth is one thing that they will have to change, and God will change that for them as they will change their object of their trust. Instead of their bank account, they're going to have to trust the Lord. Here's how the worry of the world and deceitfulness of wealth can strangle the seed of the gospel sown in people's hearts today. Check this out. If you live in the United States, you belong to the wealthiest society in the world. Did you know that? The people below the poverty line here in this country are richer than many people around the world. If you live in the United States, you are part of the wealthiest society in the world. But here's the catch. While our nation may be the richest nation in the world, or one of the richest, materially speaking, we are one of the neediest mission fields. Why? Because we as Americans have embraced the deceitfulness of wealth very well. We have bought into that lie that wealth will get us peace. That is so evident in our society and our culture because of our hunger for consumption. We consume for the sake of consuming. None of us are exempt from that. We consume. That's how the economy moves and that's okay. But the problem is we have an insatiable appetite for more stuff. Simply for the sake of having more stuff. Sadly, Very sadly and tragically, we bring that same behavior to the church. And we act like consumers rather than servants. An audience rather than a flock. And we become frustrated because we place ourselves in a position of consumer of religious services. And therefore, if that guy over there, the pastor, doesn't meet my consuming needs, I'm going to go find somewhere else, just like Walmart, and, and you go to another market store. Clever advertisers have taught us to associate self-worth with the ability to impress by what we own. Why do you think people will camp in front of a store three days before the launch of a smartphone that costs $1,000 when a similar phone sells for $99 in a mall down the street? Or why would you buy a $700 pair of designer shoes on credit when a less glamorous and more comfortable pair sells for $30? Here's the answer. We make irrational purchase decisions because we want to appear successful. And we want to appear more attractive. We want people to pay attention to us. Because we have a God-given desire for love. And that again, God wired us this way. We have a God-given desire to be loved. The problem is that desire has gone wrong because of our sin. But check this out, church. God has already demonstrated the love that we crave so much. The love that we are willing to die for. The love that we're willing to sacrifice our families for. And the love that we're willing to kill for. The attention that we are willing to kill for. Romans 5 verse 8, Paul says, God demonstrates his own love towards in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the love that people are willing to sacrifice for church has already been granted to us for free. That is a free gift from God. And that is the message of the kingdom, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So church, we don't need new toys. We don't need to consume more stuff. We don't need to appear successful. All we need is to come to Jesus Christ and ask him to fill our needs, because he does. We don't need to go anywhere else. He will transform our hearts and give us a healthy biblical perception of self. But we don't live our Christian life in a vacuum. We are influenced by the culture around us, by the wealthy culture around us. So we need to come to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, make me different. I don't want to buy into this uh, lie that tells me that if I have more stuff, I'll be more loved. People will pay more attention to me. No, all I need to do is draw near to you. 
And he will answer that prayer. He will allow that to happen. He will give you the great honor to build your whole notion of self in what he says about you, not on what people say about you. Because their opinion doesn't matter, really. And you will be canceled in a moment if you go against whatever the culture says at the moment. Which, by the way, won't be the same 10 years from now. The Word of God, on the other hand, never changes. God's opinion of you will never change. Many people reject Christ because in their mind, identification with Jesus threatens their perception of success and sophistication. In other words, their public persona. That is why most people reject Christ because they see that identifying with sinners, identifying with that kind of people, identifying with hypocrites, quote-unquote, identifying with Bible thumpers or conservatives or whatever else they call us, will threaten their perception. Case in point, the scribes and the Pharisees of the time, they objected. That man is a friend of sinners. He eats with prostitutes and tax collectors. Not us. We're the clean bunch. We're the elite. And by the way, he cannot be the king of kings because kings are born in palaces, not in mangers. You kidding me? You see, that is why, that's one of the reasons they rejected Christ. The deceitfulness of wealth and the preoccupation of the world caused them to miss the kingdom of heaven. So the question is, How should we interact with people strangled by wealth and worry? We reason with them, church. We show them the truth. We tell them like Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You see that? You're trying to buy everything when you already have everything. God supplies all things for you to enjoy. Don't fix your eyes on the deceitfulness of riches. Furthermore, we instruct him to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. 1 Timothy 6, verses 18 through 19. In other words, share what you have. Be generous with your talent, with your treasure, and with your time. Why? Because that is a good foundation, the Bible says. Everything belongs to God anyway. You don't own anything. By the way, did you know that? It belongs to God. He provided it for you to enjoy. Furthermore, we remind them of the biblical perspective that Paul articulates so well. Philippians 4, verses 12 through 13. I know how to get along with humble means, he says. And also, I know how to live in prosperity. In and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. In other words, if you're a believer in Christ, you have already been equipped how to deal with prosperity in a way that's going to create generosity, and you have already been equipped on how to live in poverty if that's what God calls you to do temporarily, knowing how to trust Him and being content with the situation in which He places you. But many people, when they put that to account, they say, no, 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 no. If that's the message of the kingdom, I, I, I reject it, and that's tragic. But... Let me talk to you about the fourth type of response here to the king. Some will respond in total rejection, others in temporary devotion, yet others in tragic deception. But thankfully, some will respond in true salvation. Verse 23, the last type of soil, the good soil. Now, here's a disclaimer. The good soil does not mean that we're good by nature. Please do not make that confusion. Being the good soil only means that God has plowed your heart in a way that the gospel penetrated in you. In this parable, the good soil symbolizes a receptive heart, 
a heart that has been prepared by the Holy Spirit. And according to Jesus, in John 16, verse 8, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit has convicted you of these things, and you responded to the message because the Holy Spirit convicted you. And did you notice that saved people always produce fruit? Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, others thirty, but no zerofold. Saved folks always produce fruit. Do you see the connection with that parable in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3? Let me read that to you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season. You see the harmony of Scripture here? If you're a believer in Christ, God expects fruit from you. Some of you will bear fruit 60-fold, others 100-fold, others 30-fold, perhaps for a season. Maybe your season now, you're bearing fruit 30-fold, and then in the next season, you will bear fruit 100-fold or whatever the case is, but you will never bear no fruit. So please do not lose sight of this concept here. In the good soil, the metaphorical seed becomes a reproducing tree, always. Genuine salvation not only produces fruit, but endures everything, you see? True believers persevere. Even though we may fall into sin from time to time, we will always endure persecution and affliction. And we endure not because of our ability, but because of the one who equips us to press on. So you will bear fruit. You will endure the hard season. Because that's how God designed your salvation to be. Don't lose hope. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.